everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. It's good to be with you podcasting today. You can go to uh, the website BibleProphecyTalk.com. You can also check out the channel on YouTube, which is Bible Prophecy Talk. Just type it into the search engine, should pull it up where you can subscribe, etc. I think I may do the last part of this podcast. I may turn it into a video. It's about the Olivet Discourse. It's some some uh, thing I've been looking at recently, and it just helps to kind of see it, but we'll get to that in a minute. Mostly in this podcast, I'm going to talk about, it's going to be a notes show, just some things that I've written down over the last week and a half or so, some some things I've been thinking about, some about Bible prophecy, some about current events. We do have a lot of current events, things going on right now, certainly. We've got the election situation. I really don't know what to make of that. I mean, I obviously see that there's fraud going on, but uh, and it does. it's painful to see all that happening, certainly. Uh, we've got the impending, I believe, economic meltdown to deal with. I don't know what the end game is for what's happening on a macroeconomic level, but it doesn't look great. We've got new shutdowns being imposed, which is just not the cure for the previously mentioned economic meltdown situation. And that's, of course, happening all over the world, starting to uh, come to America as well. New mask mandates, which is more of a social problem than anything else. The vaccine thing is something we're all going to have to deal with here very shortly. They're going to, you know, roll out the vaccines. And even if they don't mandate it, it's that you can bet it's going to be some weird social thing that's going to come with that. And it's for all intents and purposes going to be required to do a, a number of things in society. So we've got decisions to make about that. Uh, and of course, the nonsense of a vaccine for that's had no testing done, uh, certainly no long-term testing done, uh, in a completely new type of vaccine that uh, for a virus that has a 99.9% survivability rate. So, <laughs> you know, you have that uh, frustration that it goes along with uh, all the problems that we'll have to deal with. We've got censorship happening on all levels and platforms, uh, as, as well as runaway propaganda. We've got global government, the Great Reset, all that stuff happening. In any case, I feel like global government is closer than it's been in a long time. In addition, we've got food problems. Food prices are going crazy. We've got uh, some shortages, a lot of um, you know grain being bought in China, which is disrupting all kinds of stuff and increasing prices. Certainly dollar problems are causing food, food problems in the third world. And there's a bunch of other stuff going on. So a lot of negative stuff there in our current events uh, roundup, but... Um, I will say that there's good news. Uh, anytime you push propaganda this hard, you're going to have a lot of people wake up, and that is happening. It's a bitter, you know, uh, uh, victory, I suppose, a pyrrhic, pyrrhic in, in some ways. But it is nice to have some people uh, accept now without uh, question things like the New World Order or global government and that kind of thing. Now that it's out in the open, from they went from uh, denying it, or they are still denying it a little bit, but... Uh, to selling it. You know, truth is rare. That's one of the things I wanted to talk about in my notes. Um, maybe I won't go into the whole thing here, but, you know, it says in the Bible that few uh, are the, that find the, the, the narrow path, right? But broad is the way and all that stuff. To, and of course, that's talking about finding uh, um, redemption in Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. That's a whole nother thing than generally, but I think it's general too, you know? Jesus says about the parables, he's, he says he thinks God that, that 
he revealed the truths, these truths to uh, infants and to not the wise men. I think that there's a pattern there that really extends to a lot of things. You know, I think that, uh, yes, sometimes I get frustrated that not everybody believes the things, same things I do, and I know that some of my things that I believe are wrong, and that's why people don't believe them, but of the things that I believe that are right and also niche, I, I get frustrated that, that more people don't believe them. But then I remember, you know, we went through so much of Christ, Christianity where the gospel was a very niche thing to believe. You know, there were probably only a few of these what were considered cults at the time that could had somebody that could read the Bible that were believing the true gospel. The vast majority of the world was, uh, you know, didn't read the Bible and were, were the Roman Catholic Church, etc. Anyway, um, all right, so let's get into the notes. First things I wanted to talk about were kind of current eventsy things. Some of them were about this communism and socialism. I know I get frustrated when I hear about the encroachment of communism and socialism. I feel like a lot of you do as well, because we can see how absurd it is. And we we get frustrated that, hey, don't these people know? I mean, haven't they looked in, in history? It's it's failed every time. And, you know, we have these sort of things that we say. And, we, and because of that, we think that they're just stupid or something like that. And it, it kind of uh, it was an interesting train of thought that happened. It started because of a video that I'd seen uh, featured on Glenn Beck. It was a woman from Yugoslavia saying, don't let socialism come to America. I'm looking at a video on YouTube right now. It's called A Warning from Yugoslavia, Don't Let Socialism Come to America. It's about 14 minutes. It was incredibly insightful. So, And she was basically saying how this sort of socialist system uh, took over Yugoslavia. And it was very, it was very intelligent, right? It was the same kind of thing where the controlled media started dividing people very systematically with, uh, you know, and it was in her case in Yugoslavia, everybody is the same race, so they divided them on. Uh, the, there was a lot of different religions, so they used the same things, you know. Certain groups are being marginalized, and you know, whatever versus other groups, and all this other other thing. But anyway, what was interesting to me about it, and I encourage you to watch it if you if you have a chance, because it will be a little cathartic for you, because you're like, these are all the things I'm noticing, and I'm glad somebody, um, you know, is saying them. I think that you'll feel that way about it. But the thing that I th- thought was interesting was at the beginning, she said what started it all, and clearly she's coming from a secular point of view. So she said what the core problem was that there was kind of like a cult of socialism, a cult of communism, um, and co- socialism is just communism rebranded. So she said at the core, there were these true believers that, um, and, and it really kind of spread out from there. And I, I understand that that was her, her position because she, you know, as a, as a Christian, I have a different slightly worldview and I don't have a problem with viewing you know, a core group of people that truly believe communism, that's certainly possible. I tend to think that that is more on the useful idiot side, you know, like the department heads and universities and certainly, um, you know, like a mayor of Portland type, the the people that actually bought it because they were sold it in the universities and places like that by the upper level. I believe at the super top level, this is where I would differ from her, I believe that there's another sort of uh, tier to the pyramid in which they are theistic Satanists uh, that get information from um, 
supernatural sources, uh, demons, basically, that get their information from uh, Satan. And those uh, that information right now is basically how to set up communism and socialism. And I know that sounds crazy, so let me walk it through just a little bit. Because what the question then is, why is Satan into communism spe specifically? And I don't think it's communism specifically that he's into. The way I would title this thought, I want to have it here in, in my notes as, is communism is killing. Okay, so anytime communism gets set up, actually takes control of a, of a country, a very shortly after there is a purge of those that won't go along with the system. And the way I've thought about it in the past is that um, it's a necessary component to a system like that for a couple reasons. The first is that communism is basically selling people a utopia. It's saying um, that, hey, there's this great, wonderful thing that we can all have if we all agree to do this. And so you need full 100% buy-in from the population for communism to work. And you'll, you'll never get that, so you'll always have dissenters. And so, so the, and they're really the only way to do it, they, they call it re-education camps, and that may or may not work. Uh, sometimes I bet it does. But they also kill those that don't get re-educated or don't get brainwashed into it or just plain scared into it. And... That's important because it, it's two things. First, it gives them an excuse of why communism doesn't work in their system fully, or all the problems in communism can easily, easily be blamed on the inevitable part of the population that won't uh, bow down to it. Even if, like, let's say in China right now, there's like point, you know, 1% that's like openly rebellious to communism, but I bet they point to those guys and say, this is our problem all the time. You know, these are the great enemies that if only they would do right, then everything could be perfect. Not that everything isn't perfect, but if it could be more perfect or, right. Anyway, but also the reason that communism has to kill a lot of people and and dig mass graves and those kind of things early on. And we're talking about, you know, if you're up on this, I mean, Stalin and Mao killed more people than Hitler by a long, long, long shot. Hundreds of millions, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people died uh, in these systems. And it was basically for this reason. But anyway, the other reason is because um, it, it is a bad system. And so intellectual dissent, and you've seen this with the nature of current censorship, censorship the, left, the left doesn't want to debate anybody. They want to silence people. In fact, one of the reasons that communism typically fails is that they have to kill their best and brightest in the outset. Uh, those that know that communism is stupid have to be killed, so now they get to start with no smart people to run this system. It's just a logical outgrowth when you take that uh, kind of left mindset in, in, into a country. It's not just about censorship. It's about stamping out dissenting voices, and so that's been the pattern with communism. So back to the question, why does Satan, if it is true that Satan is actually at the top tier and people that really don't believe, aren't true believers in communism per se, they're true believers in Satan and they just do what he says. They're the people that buy the newspapers and buy the universities, or maybe they don't even buy them directly. Maybe they buy the people that buy the universities, but they're, they're really the ones that are moving a lot of the, the levers. In fact, back to that Yugoslavia lady, you know, a lot of this I would have a hard time understanding how is it that they can have such control over not just our media, 
I mean, it's one thing to own whatever the five or so companies that control the American media. That's doable if you have an unlimited uh, checkbook. But to own all of them all over the world, that seems a lot harder. But it does seem like the whole world has now been bought. And I think the system is bigger and broader than makes sense if you're just down to, like, I think it's just a cult of communism. You know, there's just some, some people that really believe in Marxism. It's like, no, I think it's bigger than that And in order to explain all this. But neither here nor there. The question is, why does Satan like communism so much? And I don't think it's because of communism necessarily. I think communism and socialism is a convenient tool in the modern world to gain the scepter. The scepter in ancient past has been something that kings and emperors had which symbolized their ability to kill without trial. It is all about uh, the, the state power to kill indiscriminately. And when he gets it in the modern world with, uh, with socialism and communism, he kills. And I don't even think there's much more to it, you know? Um, I, I think that he just does it when he has the chance because that's what like a killer does. And, you know, I'm sure that I don't know what the mind of, of, of these angelic beings are, what they're planning or how much control over the plan they actually have anyway. But I do know that they are just unhinged, sinful, powerful beings that love to kill, steal and destroy. And, and I believe that communism is the new newest and best way to do that in the modern world with modern sensibilities, right? Because we pride ourselves on this uh, veneer of, of civilization. And we're not like the old days with kings and to indiscriminately kill. We, we give some lip service to these ideals. And I think socialism is kind of a bridge to the old way of let the state be completely utter totalitarianism power, but yet have this veneer of like a of whatever. So it's just a convenient way to get sort of intellectual idiots because they need a lot of useful idiots in the universities and whatever to sell it to the to people. Uh, and so I think it's just convenient. Uh, in the absence of being able to take full scepter power, the state power to kill, like he used to do with kings and emperors and so on and so forth. So the note here is communism is killing. And if it happens again, and we get taken into a, a socialist communist system, and there's purges happening under the guise of we're we're not we're not letting them get forward with a t utopia, and there's a lot of purge there. I just want to encourage people: it's not necessarily the end times; it's just another cycle. That's my thing I've been saying, right? But I also want to back up and say it could be. One of the things that I'm going to talk about later is that the signs that Jesus told us to watch for specifically about the end times. Um, so that's first and foremost. We need to watch for the specific stuff that he said. Um, there's sort of like a set, I think of them as second tier kind of signs, uh, things that will exist in the end times. For example, we know that there must be some kind of global government in the end times. Therefore, watching for a global government is kind of like a sign. Jesus didn't tell us to watch for a global government, but it is, we can infer that global government exists in the end times. That doesn't mean that the next global government or the first global government will be the end times, but it's something to watch for. It's, it's why everybody kind of freaked out when, uh, 
you know, in 1948 and 67 when Israel got back in the land because we knew that Israel had to be in the land before the end times could happen. So a lot of people just jumped the gun and said, well, now that's the end times. But no, it wasn't the end times. It was just a precondition that needed to happen for some of the other things to happen in the end times. So I mentioned this thing about communism to, A, say the worst case scenario from our perspective can happen. We can be totally annihilated and it can just be another moment in history. But we need to keep our eyes open for the actual signs that Jesus told us, told us to look for, and I'm going to talk at length about that in a minute. The next thing I wanted to talk about is also kind of current eventsy and maybe a little bit of a dead horse. I talked a little bit around this area in the last podcast, and I've certainly mentioned it before. It's a theme that's on my heart a lot, so I guess that's why I talk about it a lot, which is the idea of justice. The reason that I bring it up again is that I'm really noticing a, this theme among you know, Christians on on Facebook posting these concepts or, you know, words that sort of breathe these concepts that that they sort of demand justice. Like what, like this confusion about what happens if the election is stolen? What if, is that is, can we live with that injustice? What do we do in light of that injustice? And of course, it makes you feel bad to see uh, the wicked prosper. And the questions become, well, what is our job here? But really, I think the main reason I'm talking about it is that I see it from the sort of Bible prophecy perspective, almost, where people are saying, as a result of this injustice, since we all know that justice is always served, if this time justice doesn't get served, it means something in relationship to Bible prophecy. Like, it's such a, a, a such a weird thing that's happened that it must be prophetic, because everybody knows that justice is served. And I know that's a little hyperbolic and people don't believe exactly that. But I just want to talk through a little bit of this idea because I feel like it will help some people. It certainly would help me to talk through it. (laughs) But, um, you know, the idea that justice for all, that's a fairly new concept, not just in America, but in the world. We we believe, again, there's this veneer of, of civilization that we have, but it's never been really the case for anybody up until recently, and certainly not for Christians. I think Christians especially have always looked at the government with a wary eye. There was no justice for Christians. Um, you know, the first few hundred years, you know, we were being brutally tortured by all the emperors in Rome. And then he had Constantine that I'm sure that must have seemed like a great deal. He said, hey, all of a sudden, we're all Christians now, by the way. In fact, it's illegal to be a pagan. So I'm sure there was celebration in the streets by Christians. They can come out of the catacombs, right? But that did not turn out well. It turned it into one of the greatest persecutions of Christians of all time. Certainly didn't have a lot to do with justice. But I'm talking here specifically about, um, you know, the election situation. And I don't know. I, I just want people to, to consider the idea that evil will keep winning until the Lord comes back. And I know that there's a little biblical kind of ebb and flow here. Uh, Is there justice in the world for the wicked? Are the wicked people going to be judged in this life? And it's kind of like yes and no. There's certainly Bible verses that I could make that case. But then there's also Bible verses where I could make the case that uh, the wicked do prosper to their death. And they don't ever experience what we would consider sort of earthly justice. We, we know that they will get eternal justice, which is terrible. But we also have a lot of discussion on that topic in terms of what God tells us to to do in light of that. And it's almost like a Job situation where he's, where, you know, he told Job, 
uh, where were you when I made the world? You know, I'm, I'm way above you, Job. You don't really need to know everything that I'm doing. But I think with regard to vengeance, he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord, right? So he wants the vengeance. He's jealous for the vengeance. It's something that he does and he does alone. And he can choose whether to give them justice in this life and justice in the next life or or whatever. And um, so I think it may even be worse for them if he doesn't judge them in this life because uh, it's less likely that they would repent. I mean, there's just, there's a lot going on in, I'm sure, God's mind. The, the God that made the universe uh, has this all figured out. He wants us to love our enemies, which is an interesting thing. I'll take care of vengeance. You love the enemies and pray for those who persecute you and despitefully use you, etc. So he gives us this charge to love our enemies. And of course, that's hard to do. I know I've had a thought recently about, well, you know, if we if, if it does all go uh, the wrong way, you know, maybe you'll have some solace and the, the Democrats or whatever will finally realize the error of their ways. And when we do go into socialism, we'll be like, well, there you go. I hope you're happy now. We're all getting killed. This is what you voted for. We told you. If that's what you're hoping for, let me go ahead and dissuade you of that. That will never, ever happen. The evil people, the, the children of wrath in this world, unless they are uh, changed and in the new covenant and begin to have a new heart of flesh, they will always do the evil thing. They, that's what I think the left is more than anything else. I mean, can't you see what's basically happening? The left is basically checking every box uh, that's not the Bible. So let's say, here's an issue. What do you think of this marriage issue? And then they look at the Bible. What does the Bible say about that? Oh, that, okay, I believe the other thing. Um, it is just, it is It is an anti-God situation. It's, I think, rooted in the wanting to live in darkness because of sin. If you do any of these other things, it might challenge your your sin and your rebellion. And I believe that if it's allowed to progress for very much longer, the left will always just choose the eviler and eviler option of any given situation. And if it goes into some awful, terrible, um, Hitlerian sort of purge of whatever, they're going to do that then. Okay, I think I'll just move on to the Bible prophecy thing I wanted to talk about, which is sort of an in-depth deal. I do want to mention, I am going to, the next podcast, uh, Lord willing, will be a podcast about the Temple Mount controversy issue, and I'll go over some pros and cons. I have recently uh, been just trying to figure out everything I can about that issue, Uh, so I wanted to devote an entire podcast to that. One quick thing I had in my notes is to play a couple clips from Chuck Missler because um, I was doing some research for the segment after this about the apostasy and the falling away spoken of in the Olivet Discourse. And in preparing for that, I was watching this video from Koinonia House. It was an interview with Chuck Missler from uh, May 2016. The title of the video is Prepare for End Times Apostasy. This is Chuck towards the end of his life. Um where I think he says a lot more interesting things about things like Bible prophecy and some stuff, but uh, that's another story. But he says two things that I want to play a clip for and comment on, and I and I want to set up the context here. So the title of this video is Prepare for End Times Apostasy. Uh, Missler s- suggests that in the end times there will be a great falling away of Christians. And so what he says the solution to that is, which I agree with, but it's interesting what he did with it. He says the solution to that is to be more precise about 
Bible prophecy. And he seems to be upset. There, there's a lot of confusion about some basic things. And he seems to equate the possibility of Christians apostatizing. And the first two examples he gives of things that people need to be precise about in order to avoid apostasy are pretty interesting. So let me give you the first one. Keep running into is that there's a, a, a sloppiness, a casualness if, of terms. Well, what do you mean? So gee, sloppiness, that's a pretty yeah. indicting term. Uh, so what well, do you mean by yeah, that? Yeah, uh, not being precise. For example, we keep talking about the seven-year tribulation. Yes. But if we're precise, the tribulation isn't seven years, it's three and a half. That seven-year period, which more properly could be called the 70th week of Daniel, um, is divided into two halves. Right in the middle, there's an event, the abomination of desolation, that divides it into two halves. And Jesus himself labels the second half mm-hmm. uh, as, as the Great Tribulation. That's his label on that particular period of time. And if we recognize that the tribulation is three and a half years, suddenly a lot of other things get clear. This first one isn't too interesting. I have heard Chuck Missler say this before. Um, the idea that uh, the, the whole thing isn't the tribulation is interesting, but it's interesting in this context that he says that he brings this as the first example of what not to be deceived about in order to not be deceived about the end times. It's just an odd, if you run that through, what what he could mean by that. I think that it's an interesting thing that he's saying. I know, I don't, I think he probably was a pre-tribber. I think that you could find examples of him still promoting it. Although there are some interesting things about that towards the end of his life. Uh, Alan Kirshner at Eschatos Ministries has uh, posted an article in 2014 um, uh, called Is Chuck Missler of uh, Koinonia Institute Moving Away from the Pre-Trib Position? That's two years before this instance, in which he's quoting really a newsletter written by uh, William Welty, um, but it is for the Koinonia House newsletter, in which there are some interesting things in there that seem to be suggesting they're hedging at the very least uh, against pre-tribulationalism in favor of the arguments that pre-wrath certainly makes all the time. Nevertheless, um, that's an interesting one. The second one was more interesting to me. Again, it's a call to precision. Um, we run that in other place. We, keep, we see Christian writers talking about the Antichrist signing a treaty. Ah, yes, yeah. yes. No, it doesn't say... And they, try to, and they try to make it out to all kinds of different things. Yeah, they try to... Then they elaborating, try to fit, don't they? Yeah, they fit it on, try to fit it on things. When, in fact, that's not what it says. He affirms a covenant. Hmm. Now, that might be signing a treaty, but not necessarily. And so, be, being precise in the terms, he doesn't sign a treaty, he affirms a covenant. He might be simply affirming the uh, the the uh, the covenant to Israel allow them to re- return to their sacrificial system. Right. Those are all speculations, but I think part of the thing we should be guarding against to keep from being deceived is to be precise in our terms. Now, obviously, if you're a listener of this podcast, you've heard me say that I don't know how many times. It's been sort of my uh, thing about the peace agreement issue that it's not necessarily a peace agreement. It is. A confirming a covenant. And it's interesting that Missler made the connection between not just confirming a covenant, but having it have to do with the sacrifices, which was what I've been sort of jumping up and down saying, this has to be something to do with the sacrifices. I mean, that's what that is about. And I find that interesting because, again, it's the second thing that he says that we need to be precise about in order to not be a part of those that apostatize in the end times. The third thing that he mentions, I'm not going to play the clip here, but he goes into this whole thing about Christian leaders being too pro, 
um, Mishnah or, or Talmud or, or these kinds of things, these sort of anti-biblical Jewish kinds of concepts. It, it's just a weird, it's a weird interview because on the surface of it, it doesn't make any sense of why this is called prepare for end times apostasy. And he gives these three examples of what to be aware of in order not to apostatize. It, it'll be interesting, I think, a little bit as we go into the next segment. All right, so I have just started a video here, if you are an audio podcast listener, because I feel this next section is, uh, it helps to see what I have highlighted here in the text, but you won't really need it. If you are a YouTube viewer, this is uh, part of an audio podcast. You can subscribe to my podcast, BibleProphecyTalk.com, in the description section. All right, so we're looking at Matthew 24 here, and before we get started, I guess I should uh, explain what Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, is. This is when the disciples uh, asked Jesus privately, saying, tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of, of your coming, your parousia, and the end of the age. Then Jesus answers them, and he gives them a long list of signs, starting in verse of Matthew 24, and going really to verse 31, I'll say, is the list of things that he would like them to watch for. And we know that he's serious about this. He, in the middle here, in verse 25, he says, see, I've told you beforehand. He is telling them the future. And as soon as he gets done telling them the future, he starts by telling them to really pay attention to the things that he just got done telling them. And he goes through parable after parable and historical instance after historical instance in which people did not watch uh, for signs. And their consequences were dire. Their consequences were eternal. Uh, the, they would be sent to the place in a gnashing of teeth because they didn't watch correctly. And we know that he's talking about watching for the signs specifically that he mentioned, verses 4 through 31. It becomes quite clear in the first parable that he says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson as soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you'll know that summer is near. So also when you see these things, you know that he is near at the very gate. So he's pointing back to the things he just got done saying. You got to watch for these things. This is how the historical church has always understood this. These things would happen before the rapture in verses 30 and 31. Uh, obviously, we see the sign of the day of the Lord, the sun darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, which Joel 2.31 tells us will uh, come before the day of the Lord. And then another thing that has to happen before the day of the Lord is the rapture, of course, We've where we see the angelic uh, exodus, the angels gather uh, the elect from the clouds of heaven, uh, then he will, the loud eschaton trumpet and everything happens. Uh, so that's the rapture. That is the historical view of the church. I know a lot of people out there have a view that the rapture is nowhere to be seen in Matthew 24 or Mark 13 or Luke 21. But that's actually, as we're going to see, if that's wrong, you're going to see how big the stakes are. Because what I want to do today is I want to talk about the falling away. And I want to talk about this, the green here. All these instances we're going to go through, and I'm going to prove to you one thing for sure is that Jesus really, really, really was serious about somebody watching for these specific signs between 4 and 31. These are watchmen, those who watch for these signs. And I will also ask the question then, which I think very few people do ask, why watch for those specific signs, which include things like the abomination of desolation, a man sitting in a temple, declaring himself to be God, 
Uh, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Certainly Paul understood. He went back and read Daniel about the abomination of desolation and found out that there was a man sitting in a temple declaring himself to be God. Why watch for that? What's the importance? Why get so serious about watching for the abomination of desolation? Um, and also, and I think he answers that. In the yellow here, all these instances are about one uh, particular thing. And that particular thing in yellow is deception. And not just any deception, a very specific deception. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's, let's go into proving the very first thing on my list, which is um, that this section of scripture is about watching for the Christian. And as I said, so we go into these parables, and I don't think anybody would doubt that the parable of the fig tree is talking about, you know, in the same way that you can see that a fig tree is about to be summer, you know that the things that I am saying are about to, to show up. So he says, essentially, to watch. There's no specific command, I grant you, in the fig tree parable to watch. There's no, he's just saying, when you see them, you know that the end will, will be near. It's sort of a way to set up the rest of this commands to watch. So then we get into verse 36 with no one knows the day or the hour, a phrase said multiple times in this section of scripture. But concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. He goes on to talk about the days of Noah. And one of the things he brings out about the day days of Noah, is that people were marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And here it is. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So the unawareness is something he's pointing out. You don't want to be unaware. And we're just this verse alone, we might not be 100% sure that that's what he's talking about here, that he's he's pointing out specifically, among other things, I'll grant you with a Noahic parable. But one of the things he's pointing out here is the unawareness of the people that were marrying and given in marriage. Um, so let's move on to the next thing I have highlighted. Therefore, stay awake or stay alert, some say, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. This comes after the two men are being in the field. One will be left and uh, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake for you do not know what what on what day your Lord is coming. So You've got to stay alert. You've got to watch for something uh, because you don't know what uh, day your Lord is coming. And, and I think a lot of people, ironically, interpret not knowing the day as something about imminence. Well, you can't know anything. There are no signs. Well, that's obviously not true if, if it wasn't for Jesus saying, you got to look for the signs because you don't know the day. <laughs> you know, it's essentially the opposite of that idea of imminence. You because you don't know the day or the hour, you need to know the general time. And so therefore you need to stay alert and watch for the specific signs that he mentioned from verses four to 31, which we'll talk more about later. And in this case, it's because you want to be a part of the one that was taken and not, not left. And we know this probably has rapture significance because of the context, which is talking about he's going to send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from four winds of the heaven to the other. So he's talking about the ancient promise of the resurrection uh, from the angels at the eschaton trumpet. Um, and so, so what I guess I'm trying to say here is that Again, we can prove this later on that you want to be a part of the taken and not the left uh, because of the parable of the ten virgins. But right now, I just want you to know he concludes the idea about be uh, two women grinding at the mill with one taken and the other left with the phrase, therefore stay awake because you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. 
Then he continues, but know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and he would not have left his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour you don't expect. Now, this idea of the thief uh, breaking into the houses is expanded on in other places. And the idea is that you know, if you knew the thief was coming, you would have watched. Paul goes into this in great detail, and he says that there's a lot of people in the world that uh, the day of the Lord is going to come upon them like a thief. It's actually where Paul probably gets this idea, is this thief idea from the Olivet Discourse. And he says that that uh, f- for the, those that are living in darkness, the day of the Lord will come upon them as a thief. But what does he say? He says, but you are not living in darkness, therefore that day won't uh, overtake you like a thief, or, or, or sort of paraphrasing there. So because you are not in darkness, it won't overtake you as a thief, because you have obeyed Jesus's commands to watch for the signs that precede the day of the Lord. Uh, continuing, um, this is about the faithful and wise servant situation. It concludes that parable by saying, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is more of a parable. These aren't. This isn't Noah or Lot. This is maybe fictional people, a parable. Uh, but it does end with a very eschatological thing. In context, we must kind of start to believe that the watching has eternal consequences, and that this is for Christians, not just for the world. And that's where we get into some sticky situations. But let's continue. The parable of the ten virgins is next, and a lot of people are aware of this. The the um, Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Um, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, and the wise took flasks with the oil lamps. Then the bridegroom, of course, comes at an hour that they don't expect. Uh, the foolish ones did not have oil, and they were gone trying to buy some oil when the bridegroom came back. And it concludes this situation like this. It says, And those who were ready went went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, you do not know either the day nor the hour. So here we know the watching, because you don't know the day or the hour, is because you want to be a part of those that were taken by the bridegroom, not the ones who were left. So that idea is obviously just a uh, silly kind of thing that pre-tribbers do to deal with multiple problems in this uh, passage. Um, but, but again, I, I think that what you have here as a pre-tribber, for, for, for sure, I hope this is convicting because you don't believe any of this is for you. You believe that this is for those few people who are left behind for that seven-year period. For them, it's important for them to watch for these signs. But for you, it doesn't matter. You'll be gone long, long before that. And the way I'm going to try to 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 uh, convince you that this is for you, that you are no watchman if you aren't watching for these signs. Let me back up a little bit first and say, I know it's a little bit... Uh, simplistic. I think if you're into Bible prophecy and you see something where a good portion of this, I would say the abomination of desolation is in view in, oh, I don't know, half of this section of, of, 
I mean, either the the abomination itself or the fallout of the abomination, the great tribulation, the persecution, is in view in half of these verses from of the signs from verses four to thirty one, and I think that people say, well, I won't be deceived by the abomination of desolation. I mean, it's like, yeah, I'm going to see that and I'm not going to be worried about it. It's not like my salvation is ever going to be in doubt about that. If even as a pre-tribber, you'll say, look, if I see that happen, I'll finally change my mind. I was wrong about the rapture. Okay. I get it. But what I'm trying to say here, no, this is more serious than that. You got to give Satan a little bit more credit than that. His deception is going to be for you. What what purpose is he going to come here to deceive the rest of the world that are going to hell anyway? This is for you. And Jesus is serious about you watching for these signs because of deception. So let me answer the second question now. Why, if we've proved the case that Jesus wants us to watch because we don't know the day or the hour, and there is a hint, I will say, that we need to be ready because of, that there are eternal consequences. I could go into other parables, for example, the next one, Parable of the Talents, it really gets into it, and he cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, that's obviously talking about hell. The consequences of that next parable that we didn't read, the Parable of the Talents, is hell. And then, so, so there is suggestion that this is serious business. And... Here's why it's serious business. Because he wants you to watch so that you will not be deceived. I love verses, uh, verse Matthew 24, verse 25. It's a real short verse, very easy to memorize. It says, see, I have told you beforehand. Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, knowing the beginning from the end, told us beforehand these things. And he did so, as we're going to see, he's right in the middle of a deception verse so that we wouldn't be deceived by false Christs and false prophets. So let's talk about that. The first thing that Jesus says, remember the disciples come and they ask him, say, what are the, what will the, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, dot, 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 dot. What's the first thing that he says? See that no one leads you astray. I will say that that is the theme of this section, that even the abomination is really about seeing that no one leads you astray. And the net result of the lead in astray will be the falling away. And the agents of the leading astray will be the false Christs and false prophets. And not multiple false, I mean, multiple false Christs and prophets will surely arise in the last 70th week because I expect messianic expectations will be very high if the temple is being rebuilt, etc. So there will be a lot of pretenders showing up. But certainly one will rule the day because we know that absolutely. And that's, of course, what we see in the abomination of desolation. Though there may be multiple false Christs and false prophets mentioned here, clearly the Bible has zeroed in on one false Christ and one false prophet. So we know that that's in view here because of the abomination of desolation. All right, so back to the deception. Starts off, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And I think that's something people got to get to here. Uh, this version, what am I reading here? The English Standard Version, as some will say Messiah. It's definitely, that's what Christ means. This People are going to come and say that they are the Messiah. I know a lot of people, commentators, when they're reading this and they want to do their sort of general... You know, this has happened in the past. There's lots of cult leaders that claim to be Jesus and stuff like that. Maybe so. But Jesus is telling us here that the end times, he's worried about people being led astray by people claiming to be Messiah. And here it says he, they come in his name. 
So that's maybe a little bit of weight to the idea that they will claim to be uh, Jesus himself, a return of Christ, as opposed to a, a Christ or a Messiah that, uh, that is not Jesus, but is fulfilling all the messianic things. So I, I don't know that for sure. But anyway, so he goes into the birth pangs here, and then he gets into things about the tribulation and putting you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So I, in orange, I have mostly persecution. That's what the orange here is. And I would submit that they're all tied together. And this verse is a good one that sort of explains it. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my namesake. So these are Christians being persecuted. No one doubts it. At least for his namesake. That's why they're being killed because of Jesus's name. Then many will fall away. Now, this is where I want to zero in. Falling away here is definitely, we know we're talking about Christians that are going to fall away. Betray one another, hate one another. All this is going to happen, uh, I believe, because of two things. The persecution, which is happening because of the deception. Think of it like this. We can see that a little bit more clearly here in the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist sits in the temple declaring himself to be God. I know a lot of people interpret this as the Antichrist, you know, going into the temple like a bull in a china shop and, you know, defiling it and saying, you know, temples are bad. I hate temples. I'm God now. But let's just think of it in context. I mean, sitting in the temple declaring yourself to be God is exactly what a false Christ should do, because it's the what the real Christ will do when he returns. If you know anything, if you're premillennial, you believe that when Jesus returns, he will sit in an earthly temple and there will he will stop the sacrifices because sacrifices well technically there will be some memorial sacrifices in the uh, Ezekiel situation but my point is that sitting in a temple declaring yourself to be God is a very Christy thing to do and I don't think that the Antichrist is going to be all that uh, you know people have this abomination of desolation idea that now he's just forcing everybody to do his bidding and that is certainly probably part of it but also understand that a lot of people will be glad to do his bidding. We see in Revelation 13, people worship him, saying, that, saying, who is like the beast? Who can make war with him? They worship him because of his deadly wound that was healed. There's a lot of true believers in the Antichrist after the midpoint. I believe that his deadly wound happens just before the midpoint because of Daniel 12, but that's another story. Um, but the point is, or, or I guess I should say Daniel 11, uh, 45 through Daniel 12, 1, but Anyway, let's continue with the deception aspect. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Continuing down here, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, there he is, do not believe it. So what do we gain from that? We say, Jesus has spent this time to say, look, somebody's going to say, there's the Christ over there. There's the Messiah. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Because false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, what, is, what does that tell us? It tells that, that these that don't go out, that guy says he's Messiah, they say the Messiah is over there, don't do it. This is going to be false signs and false wonders that are so great that it, it could deceive, if possible, even the elect. And I think there's a tendency with that phrase here, if possible, even the elect, to kind of check out and say, well, okay, if it is not possible for me to be deceived, then what am I even doing worrying about this? And 
that's what we're going to talk about in the in the last part of this. I believe that I'll say it like this. I believe that somebody that is saved now truly has the Holy Spirit can apostatize. Can can revoke if you will. I guess you could say it like this. They never were elect. They never were elect because in his foreknowledge he would he knew that you would apostatize. I don't believe that you can sin your way out of the covenant. I don't believe I can't even understand the gospel if we are not saved not only by Christ alone, grace alone, uh, because of Christ's righteousness. When we get to heaven, we're going to say, look, it's because of Jesus's righteousness that I'm here. I did very few things good and mostly bad. I'm not here on my merit at all. It is Christ's righteousness, which is the reason why I was able to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit in the first place, because I was seen with his righteousness. Therefore, a holy God could dwell within me, which was the whole point of the uh, new covenant and Jeremiah 31, 31, and changing your heart and the rest of it through the Holy Spirit. However, there is a caveat to once saved, always saved. As, as firmly as I believe that and can preach it, I also believe that one can apostatize. That's where that's what Hebrews is saying. And I know a lot of people have trouble with Hebrews because it is saying that a person with the Holy Spirit is now going to hell because of apostasy. In that case, it's because of persecution, which actually I would say is happening here. In fact, every time that you run into the one of those parts in the Bible that kind of goes against once saved, always saved, it's usually in the context of great persecution. Sometimes in the context of the end times as it is here. Anyway. Let me continue. For Christ and false prophets will arrive, perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. So what I want to do here is I want to say, um, is I want to say for sure that, number one, Jesus is serious about us watching. He's about us watching for these signs specifically so that we won't be led astray by false Christs and false prophets, and therefore will be the elect. Therefore, we will not apostatize. We will not be a part of those that fall, fall away. I think this whole thing can be summed up as instructions not to fall away and essentially apostatize, which is why Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 sums up this whole section you know, the people ask him, hey, Paul, I think we may have missed the day of the Lord. And he says, no, you haven't missed the day of the Lord. Didn't you basically read Matthew 24? Two things have to happen before the day of the Lord. Let me just show you. Uh, the day of the Lord we know happens, starts right around here, verse 29. Immediately the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. This is a sign that Joel 2.31 tells us will happen before the day of the Lord. It is the sign that the day of the Lord is about to happen. We see the other thing that has to happen before the day of the Lord, which is the people got to get out of there before the wrath of God happens, which is the uh, what we see in the next two verses, the rapture, angels, trumpets, gathering together in the heavens to meet the Lord. The people in 2 Thessalonians 2 are saying, hey, uh, have we missed the day of the Lord? And Paul says, no, you haven't missed the day of the Lord. Have you seen the revealing of the Antichrist sitting in the temple declaring himself to be God? Uh, which is, of course, right here, a big thing that you should have seen if you thought you were here. No, you haven't seen this. But I always thought it was kind of odd that Paul lumped together of those two things that he said you should have seen. He said the other thing was the apostasy, which uh, is the falling away. Now, it doesn't use the word apostasy here in the Olivet Discourse. It does say in some translations, then many will fall away. But it is obviously talking about apostasy. In fact, as I said, this whole thing is kind of about apostasy. And I think that's what Paul read it as. 
he was saying, this is all about people falling away because of this great persecution that will come as a result of those people believing the false Christ and false prophets. Because we know many, many will be led astray. And I believe while it may be, and almost certainly is, most of the world, the worldly children of wrath will be led astray. But I don't think that they were ever anywhere that they could be called led astray. Do you know what I mean? They, the, If they were children of wrath, they were always astray. But the being led astray implies that these were Christians. And we've got all these markers around here. It was the people for Jesus's name, the idea that the elect was being gathered and, and, and the, the tribulation here because of the Christ who is following, who is susceptible to a deception about the, the Messiah. That's us. So I guess what I want to say is, and I know this is hard for people to, to get, but if the Antichrist is going to present himself as either the return of Christ or he's going to say that Jesus wasn't the Christ, but he is because he's going to do the things that the Jewish people in, in, the, in his day, in the first century, thought the Messiah should have done. That's one of the reasons that they rejected Jesus because he didn't defeat the Romans and defeat all the enemies of Israel and make Israel the capital city of the world and dwell in the temple and declare himself to be God. Although that one, some of them will argue that right now, some of them won't. I will say this, that the declaration of deity in the temple uh, and the false prophet and all he's doing, which is calling fire down from heaven, I almost certainly guarantee the false prophet will claim to be Elijah the prophet who also called fire down from heaven. Okay, I guess in conclusion, I just want to say a few things. Uh, this section of scripture is about Jesus telling us the future, giving us a look into the future and telling us, here are some things that you guys really need to know, and then reiterating that in the strongest terms possible that we need to watch and be ready because we don't know the day or the hour that he is coming. And so we need to be ready and watch for the general signs, like the fig tree says. You can know when the summer is near. You may not know the exact day, but you'll know it's near by watching for the signs, the signs that he got done talking about. So that's number one. You're not a watchman if you don't believe that you need to watch for these. Number two, kind of an addendum to that, do not be so haughty that you think that these signs aren't for you or that the abomination of desolation is something that you, you know, obviously won't be deceived by. Because I actually believe that the modern Christian take on what the abomination of desolation is, they don't even know what it's really going to be. They think something entirely different. I mean, do, let me ask many people watching this. I mean, they may have listened to a lot of things that I said, but do you know that Daniel 11, 40 through 45 has the Antichrist right before the abomination of desolation defeating all the enemies of Israel in war? What do you think that looks like in the sort of modern Christian world? What, especially if maybe the, the Islamic world was doing something really bad right before that. And then we had a hero, um, a true hero, uh, who has destroyed all of enemies, the enemies of Israel, really actually made a lasting peace because he completely subdued anybody that would, that would threaten him. He then plants the tabernacles of his palace in Jerusalem. He dies, comes back to life, and then sits in the temple declaring himself to be God, which I would argue is very, very messianic. And I, I would say without a doubt, at that point, the Jewish people of the world, because all of those things are very specific things that they were watching for, they're going to interpret that war as Gog Magog, 
they're going to understand what he's doing when he sits in the temple declaring himself to be God. They're going to see that for what it is, the Ezekiel uh, chapter, you know, 40 through 47 or whatever of the, of the or um, basically Daniel or whatever, the, the Messiah ruling and reigning from the temple. They understand what that is. I don't feel like that we do. So <clears throat> we think we understand what the abomination of desolation is, but really we're ripe for deception. Satan is a lot smarter than most of us have given, us cre- given him credit for. And Jesus has told us to watch. And I believe that uh, I just want to encourage people to go back and read these things and, and tuck them away in your heart and make sure that no matter what happens, or whatever theory that you take next about the end times, never ever deviate from Matthew 24, 4 through 31. Make sure that those are the things that you really are watching for. 